You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Well, peace be with you. Hey, whether you're in person or online, we say welcome. We are glad that you uh, could join us, and we pray that a word would be spoken or song song that will enrich your life in Christ Jesus. How about that new song? Amen. Powerful, powerful song. Praise God for uh, the talent that the Lord has allowed us to to have here as a church. If you would, let's uh, pause and pray, and we're going to dive right into today's text. Gracious Father, Abba Father, we worship you. We magnify you. We extol you. We we love you. We need you. Even now. Especially now. For your sheep know your voice and a stranger they will not follow. So speak, Lord. For your servants are listening. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, as we continue our series in the book of Matthew, uh, today I want us to ponder a question. And the question that I want to set before you is pretty simple. Where do you go when you blow it? Like, where do you go when you really, really, really fail? And when I talk about blowing it or, or failing, I'm not talking about, you know, you forgot your second cousin's birthday and you didn't call him and say happy birthday, the cousin with whom you never talked to, right? <laughs> um, I'm talking about when you really blow it. I'm not talking about missing or forgetting to get milk on the way home from work. I'm talking about when you really, really blow it. When you cross a point in your conscience that makes you feel debilitatingly guilty. I'm talking about when you tell a lie and you think that it's no way that the lie is going to catch up to you and it catches up to you. And not only does it catch up to you, but it causes you to lose trust with someone you love. I'm talking about the adultery. I'm talking about the the flirting. I'm talking about the sinning against one's roommate to the point that it's so thick in the apartment that you're not sure if it's safe to sleep at night. Where do you go when you blow it? Where do you go when you fail, when you disappoint yourself and you disappoint God, when you disappoint someone who is close to you. Well, in today's text, we're going to see two disciples who absolutely blow it. One is a disciple who proves to be a disciple, and the other is a disciple who ultimately his life points to him not truly being a redeemed person. They both blow it. And the main thing that I want us to walk away with and the main thing that we're going to see uh, today is this, is that those who fail 
and who allow Christ to carry the burden of their failure. Their failure is never final. Let me put it another way. In Christ, your deepest and darkest failure is never final. Today's text, we see that it comes right on the precipice of Jesus being in a courtroom. And last week, we looked at how Jesus was being um, unjustly tried, um, how his name was being slandered and false witnesses was coming forth uh, to try to trip him up on behalf of the religious and, and civil court of his day. We saw that he was not only slandered, but he was uh, spit upon. Not only was he spit upon, but he was struck and he was teased. And yet Jesus in his greatest hour of, of agony and temptation and beating, he stood firm. He stood faithful. And it points us back to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying to God the Father, asking that this cup, God's wrath, and the beating uh, that he was getting ready to take, that it, if it was any way possible for the Lord to allow it to follow. And Jesus is on his face in the garden, sweating blood and tears, praying for the Lord's deliverance. And so we've we saw Jesus' faithfulness and his ability to remain faithful because he was connected to the Father. In today's text, we're going to see Jesus is still in the courtroom, but Matthew is going to uh, take us out of the courtroom and into the courtyard. And in the courtyard, we see Peter, Jesus' most outspoken and confident disciple is facing a deep time of testing. In verse 69, it says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl approached him and said, You were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. You don't know what you're talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those who were with him, this man was with Jesus, the Nazarene. And it's interesting that Matthew brings up that he's Galilean, that he's a Nazarene. And the next uh, uh, scene is that, he, uh, that Peter has a, an accent. And so these are the kind of city folks, those who are in Jerusalem who speak with a certain way in specific dialect, uh, kind of throwing shade on uh, those who are more in the countryside of Nazareth and Galilee, and a little girl comes to Peter and essentially punks Peter. And it's like, yo, I saw you with Jesus. Now, another gospel tells us that this little girl was the high priest servant. So she had seen this going down from the beginning, probably in Gethsemane in the courtyard. And she says, you were with him. And another woman comes up and says, you were with him. And crowds start coming around. So, G so Peter goes into the courtyard and a group of people start saying, no, you were you were with them. And what gives you away is your accent. You're not from around these parts, right? And Peter each time denies Jesus. But look at, look at verse 74. Then he started to curse and to swear with an oath. All the times that he heard Jesus saying, don't swear with an oath. I don't know the man. 
And immediately the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Peter is broken because he remembered just earlier that night, Jesus said, you will deny me three times. And he assisted. Uh, he said it over and over. There's no way that I am going to deny you. All may betray you, but I'm not going to deny you. And for a minute, it seemed like Peter was about it. It seems like he was strong, right? It seems like he was courageous, even in the Garden of Gethsemane when he took his sword and he went for a soldier's head. And as Pastor TBJ said yesterday, he missed and hit his ear. But see, the power that Peter was resting on was his own power. It wasn't kingdom power. It wasn't God's power. It was his own strength and his own might. And rather than uh, taking Jesus' invitation to be weak and to see himself as weak and to pray out to God in the Garden of Gethsemane like Jesus, instead, his flesh, which was weak, overpowered his spirit. And now we see as a result, a couple scenes later, Peter is completely becoming undone. He is swearing. He is cussing. He has to be bleeped out. As he says, I don't know Jesus. I wasn't with him. Yeah, the one who I saw and participated in him feeding a multitude with a few fish and five loaves, I don't know. The one who healed a a, a leper from their leprosy, I don't know him. The one who opened blind eyes and unplugged deaf ears. I don't know him. The one who raised the dead and gave Lazarus another shot at life. I don't know him. Get away from me. And that's in great contrast to Jesus, who was able to withstand being slapped by strong, grown men. And Peter, who was questioned by little servant girls. But that's not the comparison that I want to make today. Because we all know that Jesus is is the strongest and he was without sin. But the comparison I want to make today is with the the next character in the story, who is Judas. We continue to read verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was full of remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned and betraying innocent blood, he said. What's that to us? They said. See to it yourself. So he threw the silver onto the temple and departed. Then he went and he hanged himself. And the rest of the verses in this pericope talk about what the chief priest did with the monies that he threw. Rather than put them back in the temple, uh, temple uh, treasury, they went and bought the field. Um, it can be implied or assumed when you put all the pieces and synopticals together. It was the field in which Judas went and hung himself. And then Matthew quotes in Matthew uh, chapter 27, verse 8, the prophet Jeremiah and Zechariah mash up of their words, which essentially prophesied uh, this happening. And he gives credit to Jeremiah, who's the greater of the two prophets in terms of most known. But as we look at these verses with Judas, I want us to see that Judas appeared to be repentant. I mean, he's remorseful, full of remorse. He shows restitution. He gives the 30 pieces back. And then he confesses 
that this innocent man is being condemned because of his sin. Let me put a pause right there. I hear some people try to pin the Gospels against the epistles or against Jesus, against Paul. Some people would go so far to say like the uh, apostles have a a deeper uh, theology of the cross and the gospels don't really get to that. But here we see a theology of the cross, don't we? The theology of the cross is simple. That an innocent man who was also God named Jesus stood condemned. That the death of Jesus was a judicial act in which his own religious people, his own people, um, held him accountable in a religious and civic court, as well as all of Rome, though he was without sin. Both the Gospels and Pauline epistles teach us that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin in order or so that we might become the righteousness of God. But Judas was complicit in that. And Judas went a different route with his brokenness. He hung himself. And so the question that I want to pose to you with the rest of our time is simple. What's the difference between Peter's response and Judas's? After all, Peter denies Jesus three times. But the Bible says that he remembered the words of Jesus and he wept bitterly. But Peter doesn't give up on life. He doesn't throw in the towel. Though he's disappointed, he doesn't harm himself and he's not in despair. And I believe that the difference lies in the fact that Peter knew that he could not pay for his own sins. I believe that the gospel had begun to take root in Peter's life. And even though Peter didn't know all of the answers in his weeping, his heart began to remember what Jesus had begun to teach just chapters before. And in chapter 26, we read that Jesus institutes a new covenant with the disciples. And he says these words, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel seed had been planted in Peter's heart. And I believe he knew that his only hope for the forgiveness of sins is what Jesus would do. The new covenant that Jesus instituted in Matthew chapter 26 is all about this invitation that Jesus gave his disciples to to live under the rule of God in order to receive forgiveness for their past, present, and future sins. And because Peter had made a confession, Matthew chapter 16, that Jesus Christ is Lord, even when his faith seemed to fail him, the Holy Spirit was keeping him. In contrast, with Judas, we see a man who never truly gave his heart to Jesus. The whole time that Jesus is doing miracles and raising the dead, Judas's heart, though it appears to be falling on good soil, it's not falling on good soil. 
In fact, Judas doesn't call Jesus Lord, but he calls him rabbi. Judas rips off the treasury that should have been going to the poor and to help those who were in need for selfish gains. When Judas sees that Jesus is not the Messiah and the way that he wanted Jesus to be the Messiah, he turns his back on Jesus and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver. And you may be thinking to yourself, but he repented. And the question I have for you is, did he? The Bible says that Judas was remorseful and that he paid restitution, but remorse and restitution is not repentance. Repentance is vertical before anything else. It's us giving our heart to God. It's us like David saying, God against you and you alone have I sinned. It's crying out to God and saying, God, create in me a clean heart and renew in me the right spirit. Repentance is knowing that the only way to have your wrongs righted is not you bearing the blunt of your wrongs upon your own shoulders, but you allowing Christ to bear that burden. The word that we have here for remorse means to have a change of mind. Judas had a change of mind, but repentance, metatononia, throughout the New Testament is to have a change of heart. Judas's heart was not changed. In pride, he refused to go to God. See, remorse is short-lived. Remorse is distressed by the consequences. Remorse wants public attention. Remorse makes external displays of contrition. Remorse hesitates to follow counsel in relation to reconciliation and restitution, but repentance is is long-term. Repentance is, is distraught by one's actions. Repentance displays internal development and change. Repentance comes to a place of initiation and restoration, not because one has gotten caught but because one has sinned against a holy and a righteous God. Repentance is what David models for us in Psalm chapter 51, verses 1 through 10. I want you to hear the voice of a repentant man who failed big time, who blew it. And where did David go when he failed big time, when he blew it? When the prophet Nathan came to him and helped him to see how egregious his sin was, he went to God. He said, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion, completely wash me away, away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me against you and you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Now, of course, David know that he sinned against Bathsheba and against Uriah. But but he's saying in a moment of contrition that that what matters most and, and foremost is that I sinned against you. Surely you desire integrity. 
in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. God, create me a clean heart and renew in me the right spirit. Beloved, The difference between repentance and remorse is that repentance is God-centered. Remorse is self-centered. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to 10, as he is celebrating the church of Corinth and how they have responded to a rebuke that he gave him, he says this, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, it leads to life without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Remorse, a guilty conscience, and an attitude that says, I am going to make this right. I can make this right. I'm going to starve myself and call call it fast because I feel guilty. I'm going to go above and beyond to be kind to this person to a degree of almost default because I want to make this right. When we believe that that is what makes us right, rather than God who cleanses us, we are participating perhaps in a worldly sorrow. It is devoid of the spirit. It is filled with regret. It is more concerned with perceptions and what other people think than God, what he thinks and what he's done for us. So my question to you, beloved, is where do you go when you fail? When I fail, where do I go? Where do you go to get help? Where do you go to get relief? And there's only two options. The first option is you bear the burden yourself. You carry the weight yourself. You atone for your mistake and your failure yourself. And option two is Jesus buries the burden for you. You go to Jesus, you repent, and you receive His grace. Every one of us in here has sinned and each of us has sinned greatly. We all are moral failures. We all fall short of God's kindness. We all have blown it greatly. And we can come to church on a Sunday and we can hide and we can pretend we have it all together or we can admit the truth that we even on our best days, are a mess, contradictory, broken. We can embrace the fact that that the call to discipleship is is not a call to perfection. It's a call to adore Jesus who is perfect. And if you don't cultivate a heart of appreciation for Jesus who is your Lord and what he has done for you, and if you allow the the burdens of your sin to to stop with you, then Satan is going to crush you. Satan is going to attack your conscience. He is going to pound on you. He is going to, to crush you with conviction. 
He's going to tell you that there's no way to be forgiven. There is no way to be loved. But this text tells us that the cross of Christ has a different story, has a different way. An innocent man was killed for your sins and your failures so that when you blow it, you can go to him and be forgiven and cleansed. So God's invitation to you today is to learn to live with your weak foot forward before him and to drag what is in darkness into light. Because when you expose your sin and your failure, it loses power. Satan loses power. And many of us in the auditorium, we are not experiencing the power of Jesus Christ because we are not facing our sin head on because we believe that the truth will crush us. But the Bible says that the truth is what sets us free and that Jesus has come to give us life. And so we can confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. We can confess our sins, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in him. We can confess our sins, knowing that he has come for the guilty. We can confess our sins, knowing that shame does not have to have a hold of us. We are not our sin. We are Christ beloved. That's why James gives us an incredible invitation and picture of true, vibrant, thriving Christian community when he says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Jesus wants to heal you. And the way you receive healing is by dry, taking that darkness and putting it in the light by walking in deep community, developing friendships with trusted Christians and allowing them to see who you are and believing the gospel that the worst things about you have already been seen, has already been said, has already been exposed, and it was nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. And if the whole world found out about your greatest and biggest failure, it does not mean it's final because in Christ, failure is never final. Beloved, you are deeply, deeply broken, but there's good news. You are even more, tons of times more, loved. And in Christ, you stand before the Father as perfect and forgiven. I wonder this week if Judas was present in today's sanctuary, what would I say to him? If Judas had just sold out Jesus and betrayed him with a kiss for 30 pieces and I had an opportunity to preach to him, what would I share? And if he was present today, I would tell him, Judas, is not over. 
If he was present today, I would tell him, Judas, you don't have to harm yourself. Judas, forgiveness is available. Judas, Jesus was in that courtroom allowing himself to be slandered, to be spat on, to be struck because he loved you. Judas, Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. Judas, Jesus is in the business of reclaiming ruined sinners like you so that you can not only be forgiven, but loved. And some of you here today, I believe it's in the same place. You think that you have done so much damage and made so many mistakes that life is really over for you, that God could not forgive you and invite you into his kingdom, let alone his family. Some in here today, you are waddling in a sense of despair, like there's nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. And perhaps like Judas, you are on the cusp of even taking your own life. And I want you to hear me today. Jesus never gives up on you. Jesus loves you and likes you. He is crazy about you. Jesus' blood reaches to the highest mountain and flows to the deepest valley. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in guilt. All of Jesus' disciples have absolutely blown it. All of God's beloved have absolutely blown it. Ask Adam if he blew it. The one who walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Ask Eve if she blew it. Come here, Moses. Ask Moses if he blew it. Ask David if he blew it. Ask Peter if he blew it. And here's what's amazing about Peter. What's amazing about Peter is that after he blows it, he weeps bitterly. He goes into hiding. But that's not the end of his story. Three days later, he's going to see his resurrected Jesus. Sometime after that, he's going to sit on a seashore while Jesus cooks some breakfast and restores him by asking him the question, Peter, do you love me? And three times, Peter's going to say, yes, Lord, I love you. And then Jesus scandalously is going to say, feed my sheep. Wait a minute, God, I betrayed you. I, I cursed and swore that I did not know you or belong to you, and yet you restore me to ministry. And here's what's really going to blow your mind. Forty days later, Peter is going to stand and in the same place and proclaim Christ and 3,000 people are going to come to Noah. God's grace is so scandalous. God's grace is so amazing. God's grace is so freeing. God's grace is so liberating. God's grace is so amazing. In Christ, failure is never final. Divorce is never final. Adultery is not the last word. Lust is not the last word. Stealing is not the last word. In Christ, there is no such thing of hopelessness when we take our eyes off the vertical and stop navel gazing and look up to the cross by which we are saved. Grace, grace, God's grace.
And the question for you today is, will you believe that? Just will you look to Sunday morning? What would have happened if Judas had just waited to Sunday? What would have happened if he had just waited around to see Jesus walk out of that tomb with all kind of swag and love? What would have happened if he had just, just held on and been in the room with the rest of the disciples and heard Jesus say, you see my palms and you, you, you see the the, the nails that went through my feet. What would have happened if he just, just got to see Jesus on that mountain affirming his beauty and dignity and even in his failure saying, go now and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. And what could happen to you if you believe the scandalous message of the gospel that your sin is not what defines you, it's his grace that defines you and that he invites you to come to him to find rest and restoration and purpose and healing as you walk in the light and not in the darkness. Every Sunday we celebrate this big, beautiful gospel that we could never blow it to the point of not being loved by God. If we turn and trust him and walk in his ways. We take this meal called communion. The night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. The same way he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. And Christian, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we preach, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And part of that proclamation that is in the Lord's death, his blood was shed. And in his blood, there is power, forgiveness, restoration. There's the power to live, to love, and to obey Christ as his beloved. Father, we thank you that you restore sinners. This is almost scandalous that a man would curse and swear to not know you after just swearing to never leave your side and you don't hold a grudge. You stand in that courtroom and you allow yourself to be stripped and to be beaten and to be mocked and to be bloodied and to be nailed to a cross, to be discredited because of your love for him. And God, what what love you have for us that you, Lord, took that beating for us. You took that mocking for us. You took that bruising for us. You allowed your father's wrath to be Holy poured out on you so that we could go free and live as those who are redeemed and perfectly forgiven. What manner of love is this? That you, Lord, would lay down your life for us and call us friends.
What good news? What beautiful news? What vibrant news? Thank you, Lord. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.